0: Hello! Hi, welcome to Loitering.
1: It's a podcast for the art you can't get over. I'm Mandy. I'm Justine. And today, um, we're really excited. We're going to talk about uh, t- Toni Morrison.
0: So excited.
1: Yeah! Toni Morrison died just about a year ago, like mm-hmm. last week, so this is a, an interesting coincidence. Um, we watched a documentary about her on Hulu called The Pieces I Am um that is stellar and if you're looking to get into tony morrison i think that's a great place to start i want to do like a little background on her yeah
0: the documentary is just a fantastic introduction to tony yes um, i've watched it twice now and we'll probably watch it again yeah like anytime i need inspiration i feel like oh
1: yeah no i i finished the documentary and then immediately picked up beloved the book we're going to talk about in a little bit mm-hmm. yeah so she was born in 1931 in lorraine ohio Uh, Her name, her given name, is Chloe Anthony Wofford, but apparently no one in Ohio knew how to pronounce Chloe, so she shortened her saint's name, Anthony, and went by Tony. She attended Howard University, uh, an HBCU, got a BA in English, and then went to Cornell for her master's degree. She worked as a teacher at the college level for several years, and then she moved to Syracuse to work as an editor at a little company that got bought out by Random House that I didn't look up. Yeah, and she worked as an editor for several years um, while writing her own books, and that's something that I... Found really interesting about her.
0: Yeah, and something I didn't know before didn't know watching either. the documentary that she wasn't just like, "Oh, I do editing on the side, and I'm a writer." Like she was a full time, like in your face editor. Who they describe yeah, her as like I, she really took care of all of her writers in yeah. like an old fashioned way. And one part I thought was really fascinating. She said something like. I tried to do what I could in, like, my small corner of the Mm. world, and what Mm -hmm. I could do was elevate voices and elevate people as an editor and, and, you know, pay attention to writers I really liked, and she really did that.
1: Yeah, so she was born in the 30s, so obviously she was in her 30s when the Civil Rights Movement was happening, Mm -hmm. and... um, she yeah at that point in the documentary she was talking about how like it's important for people to be in the streets and it's important for protests to be happening but I can't be out in the streets because I have two sons and I work I do all this work so what can I do and she so she approached Angela Davis and was like hey I think you need to write an autobiography Mm -hmm. and Angela Davis was like I'm 28 what are you talking (laughs) about and Tony Morrison was like no like you you have an interesting story that the world needs to hear and she edited Angela Davis's uh autobiography and then later muhammad ali's biography which i did not know i didn't i did not know that she was the editor for these two huge figures yeah autobiographies yeah and all the while that she was doing that she was doing her own writing she published the bluest eye sula paradise uh a couple other song of solomon um, and the black book while she was editing full-time maybe one or two more in there and her early work was, like, well-regarded, uh, I would say, more by Black readers than white readers, as you might imagine. Um, one reviewer in the New York Times had a, a really condescending and racist review of Sula, um, her, her book Sula, where she said that Toni Morrison was too talented to write only about Black experience and basically was saying, like, Once this writer starts writing about other like bigger things than black experience, meaning like white experience, then she'll really be onto something. And so Toni Morrison was just like, I don't want to do that.
0: Yeah. Also, just like the epitome of the backhanded compliment. Oh yeah. Like yeah, (laughs) she's too talented a writer. It's like to talk about
1: her black people experience. Like yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So that's something that she kind of. That's something that was like talked about repeatedly in the documentary. Was that she didn't like minimize her own topic. She didn't. Um, she didn't write for white people. She wrote black experience for black people, and she didn't explain um, what this meant to someone. She didn't explain what the shorthand meant or what this like reference meant to the to the audience because she's like that explanation is for white people and I don't want to write for white people which I thought was really lovely and then all the there were a bunch of authors in the documentary giving little uh snippets about their experience working with her mm-hmm. um and they they were a lot of them were saying the same thing like she didn't write for white people and that's kind of the groundbreaking thing that she did yeah. in the 60s and mm-hmm. she didn't like cater to anyone
0: and in doing so, in an interesting way, she made it more universal. Mm-hmm. I'm always, like, a big proponent of, like, the more you write, like, this very individual style and mm-hmm. way that suits you and your community, like, the more it speaks to the human experience. Yes. And it may just be, I mean, she speaks to the human experience better than oh anyone my God. that yeah. I think I've ever read.
1: <laughs> like, yeah, I was... I think that that comes through a lot in the book Beloved, which we both read. I say read in loose quotes because I'm like halfway through it. Yeah, we, I guess we'll get to it later, but we both thought of a, of a specific passage in the book Beloved and then looked, at, looked up just like a clip on YouTube, Beloved movie on YouTube was the words I typed in, and that clip from the movie came up. Yeah. And it's just this powerful... Passage about like what it means to love your body and be a human being, and oh, it's so, it's so powerful. Speaking of powerful, there's a moment in this documentary where she, she recounts finding out that a prison in Texas had banned the book Paradise. Oh yeah, I love Um, that moment. Yeah, because it might incite a riot, is what they said to her. And she, her quote from the documentary says, and I thought, how powerful is that? And then she laughs a little bit, and she says, I could tear up the whole place. Yeah, and that's kind
0: of like a theme throughout the whole documentary, is her words as power. Yes. Um, She begins with a story about her and her sister when they're little, and they would like write words on the sidewalk mm. in chalk and just kind of like, as they were learning to, mm. to write and, and figure things out, but they had seen, you know, fuck written somewhere <laughs> yeah. and like went to like write it out and they're like, check into what's the next letter. And then her mom like runs out of mm-hmm. the house and is yelling at them. And as a little kid, she was like, huh, words, that words have power. Yeah. If a, just a word can make my mom act like that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> It kind of, like, weirdly instilled this lifelong love of the power of words in her. uh
1: Uh-huh. And also, her... She... I feel like early in the documentary, she talks about how her grandfather was the first person in her family to learn to read. And her grandfather learned to read at a time where, like, you could be put in jail for reading as a black person or teaching a black person to read as a white person. It was illegal for black people to read. Mm -hmm. And so, like it was never explicitly stated in her household that like words have power but it was kind of in the air a little bit
0: yeah and I think that that is such a testament to how children learn and grow up it's really not what you say mm-hmm. it's what you do yeah. that they pay attention to but I love how she's able to talk about her life like from the perspective of a child too and she said huh like as a kid I was like why do you keep reading the bible over and over again yeah and then she's like and then I realized that was the only book he had and mm-hmm. what had the book that he learned to read with and that's that's why
1: that was the power but, yeah Ooh, I love I love her so much I, I so I read Beloved in college in my freshman year and I was doing that thing that like pretentious freshmen do sometimes where they take a class that they're not ready for <laughs> and so I took this class on the novel and I would say I got like half of it like half of it was something I could get and then yeah. the rest was like over my head and Beloved was definitely like way over my head. What were some of the other novels in the class? Just curious. Um so we read Heart of Darkness, Frankenstein, a Don Delillo novel. We read The Lovely Bones, which I was like, mm. not I was like, why are we reading this? Um
0: just to throw a super contemporary one in there for a the time, a super <laughs> contemporary
1: and like a YA kind of yeah kind of thing, yeah, um, which is like a representative of the novel. Yeah, we, you know, uh, we read *Beloved*. Oh, we read *The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime*, and then a couple others I can't remember. Nice. We read thirteen novels wow. in a semester. Which wow,
0: was, that's a lot yeah. to delve into each and talk about them too, and it really was, spend time. Wow. Yeah. Side note on Frankenstein, I just listened to a podcast on Mary Shelley on The Sea Word. It was so good. But I didn't realize she lost her virginity on her mother's grave. Yes. And her mom was Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote Vindication of the Rights of Woman.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Mary Shelley is fucking metal. Yeah. Um, I want to read biographies of her next,
0: but... Yes. Who
1: was she married to?
0: uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley. Yes. The romantic poet. Yes. Percy the Bish.
1: She just like (laughs) didn't have any concept of her limitations as a woman in that time. Mm -hmm. She was just like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna write Frankenstein. I love it. Yeah, (laughs) and I'm gonna publish it under my name. Like, I like on the podcast they talked about how it was like,
0: um, it started as like a ghost story contest Mm. when they were like, Oh, yeah, interesting. In the dark, like when weather was super weird in that time period or
1: something. I don't know. I know what you're talking about. There was a big environmental thing that happened and blocked out the sun for like a year. Right. (laughs) Um, Which doesn't sound that off-base from the world we're currently living in, to be honest. Truth. If that happened, I'd be like, you know what? Go for it. What else? Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: Well, and to kind of back up and segue back to what Tony said about the civil rights movement, about doing what you can in your corner Mm -hmm. of the world, I found that really inspiring for right now, Yeah, just to pay attention to what it is that you can do in the position you're in, whether Mm -hmm. that's at your job or like with your your voice or your platform. I thought that was
1: really inspiring. Yeah, Yeah. I definitely did too. Yeah, so I think we're ready to dive into Beloved
0: oh yeah so this is the one we were just talking before we got started um this is the one that kind of propelled her to win the nobel prize yes she mm-hmm. won the
1: nobel prize in literature in 1993 she went to the nobel ceremonies in sweden and came back in the documentary and said i like the nobel because they know how to give a party yeah just like <laughs> so that's cool. my one line about the nobel prize also um, i didn't know that she and fran lebowitz were such good friends yeah which is cool yeah yeah, is that the woman in the documentary who says I highly recommend having a friend win the Nobel? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's that was a really fun moment. Um, it's like, I'll take that recommendation. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Anyone wanna win the Nobel for me so I can get a free trip to Sweden? That'd be great. <laughs> I guess some context. She was working at Random House as an editor, and then someone who is also in the documentary, whose name I wrote down, but don't remember. Is it Robert Gottlieb? Maybe.
0: Oh yeah, he was the one who was the editor at Knopf. I don't know how to say that word. Oh yeah, no. but Knopf. But it's
1: whoever Knopf. Yeah, he's knopf. a Knopf in knopf. the in the documentary. Now, yeah, like, I'm pretty sure you don't pronounce that K. But what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> Not to be like snooty, but um, yeah. So he edited all but one of her books. Except for The Bluest Eye. So The Bluest Eye, he was her first book and he didn't edit it. And then there was one other book after that that he didn't edit. But Tony Morrison's editor went to her at Random House and was like, Hey, um, you should quit editing and write full time. Turns out you're a writer, Tony. <laughs> he was like, uh, we figured out what you're doing on the side and it's writing these bomb ass books and you should quit. And so she did. She um, she left Random House and she started writing full time. And in the documentary, she talks about how she like didn't really know what to do. She had this kind of story in her head, um, and then she was sitting in her house and she saw on the pier a woman in fully dressed with a sun hat walk out of the water and like sit down and then disappear. And she was like, "I'm gonna write about that person." Yes, <laughs> and that's kind of how this book came about. There's also a a clipping, like a newspaper clipping that she found about a woman named Margaret Garner who mm-hmm. was arrested for killing her infant while she was trying to escape.
0: Yeah. And I think, like, the interesting legislative thing there was they were trying yeah. to figure out whether to charge her with murder or destruction of property. Yeah. Because she was an escaped slave and yeah. her children would have grown up to be slaves.
1: Yeah, which is. We'll get into this too with the book, but I think it's particularly daunting to think about, like, the legalese that goes into this question because. As she explained in the documentary, if they charged Margaret Garner with murder, then that would be an admission that enslaved people are human beings. Mm -hmm. And if they charged her with destruction of property, that would be an admission that even a black infant doesn't count as a human being, Mm -hmm. which are both like, you're pulling the law in these two different directions and neither one is good for white people. like
0: Yeah, well, and it really exposed that it was a terrible institution yeah. for everyone. Yeah. Um, it, the really interesting part is it's nexus, I think, was this, or not nexus, but impetus was this historical newspaper clipping. Uh-huh. But it grew into this very fictional, very spiritual, very like magical realist uh-huh. sort of just powerhouse of a book.
1: Oh my God. Yeah, it's like partly a ghost story, but it's also partly, I would say it's like mainly a ghost story. It it is not really a story about slavery as much as a story about a haunted house. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's just do like a quick synopsis first before we dive into all these other stuff. Um, So the book is, the primary uh, character is Setha who was formerly enslaved. And then she lives in a house called 124 with her daughter named Denver and her mother-in-law named Baby Suggs. The beginning of the book starts with the house being like super haunted and creepy, and but everyone in the house is like cool with it. They've all been there long enough that it mm-hmm. doesn't bother them. And they know who the ghost is. They know who the ghost is. Mm-hmm. Um, the ghost is her infant daughter who Setha killed when she was trying I I'm not I haven't gotten to that part of the book yet. Um the slave catchers find her at the house. Okay. So
0: um baby Suggs, the mother-in-law, she was was freed under the not jurisdiction. What's the word I'm searching for with the permission of her previous owner, I guess, yeah. her son worked off like her last 10 years of life or something so the owner yeah. allowed her to go move to this um, safe haven of a place in Ohio mm-hmm. which I think the book also like delves into this interesting place where like even the nice ones aren't really that nice in terms of yeah. slave owners because the the owners of Sweet home the plantation they were on the garners mm-hmm. so Tony Morrison does use that historical element of Mr. and Mrs. Garner were mm-hmm. the the slave owners for Sweet home. Um, but they treat the slaves very well, but, you know, like being treated very well doesn't mean a whole lot when you're still enslaved mm-hmm. and they really expose that. So, um, baby Suggs moves to this, uh, small town in Ohio and her son is still back on the plantation working off her debt, mm-hmm. basically. So she says, Yeah, they let me go, but on the back of my son.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so
0: yeah. when it becomes intolerable is when uh, Mr. Garner dies. Mm-hmm. His wife is too sick to function
1: mm-hmm.
0: and calls a brother in law, the school teacher, mm-hmm. to come run the plantation. And he's your typical cruel, terrible. horrible slave owner who Mm -hmm. um, beats everyone mistreats them and so it becomes intolerable for them they make plans to escape Mm -hmm. and so setha and her children do escape without the son he didn't make it Mm -hmm. and uh, eventually the the school teacher and slave catchers come to the house Mm in ohio and find her okay and that's where where the she takes her children up under the arms when she sees them approaching the house, takes them out to the mm-hmm. shed. And she says in the book, her her plan was for them all to be together on the other side. Yeah. So she tries to kill the two little boys first. They end up living. Mm-hmm. And then she she slits the throat of the toddler, the girl. Mm-hmm. And she has the baby, who will grow up to be Denver, one of the characters, mm-hmm. by the ankle. When they come into the shed and stop her. Yeah. Okay. So the only one that actually ended up dying was the toddler, the okay. little girl. The two boys lived, but
1: yeah, um, yeah, in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Just. Yeah. Part of what I so the other character in the book is beloved is the the ghost of the the daughter. The girl who who can crawl
0: already, question mark. So whenever they refer to her, the little girl who dies at at first, she had gotten away with the two boys beforehand. Mm -hmm. So Setha, when she gets to the house with her baby that was just born, keeps saying, oh, the little girl that can crawl already, question Mm -hmm. mark. And they keep um, referring to her, crawling already, question mark, baby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they keep referring to her that way.
1: Because she didn't have a name yeah 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 and that's something else that so something that the book is doing over and over again is it is like giving you sometimes it's giving you like a direct flashback into here's the experience of paul d who was on the sweet home plantation with setha and then appears in like the first or second chapter um comes back to find her Here's this chapter about Paul D ex- escaping from a prison farm. Mm-hmm. Um, here's uh, there's like a couple chapters like that that I've gotten so far that are like explicit memories or flashbacks or like recounting of things. But for the most part, these stories about the experience of slavery are coming in this like kind of offhand way. Mm-hmm. Like Setha says, "Oh, beloved." Is reminding me of this woman I knew who was locked in a room for two years and all she was allowed to do, the only purpose she served was to have sex with the master and his son. Mm-hmm. She didn't see the outside world for two years. She lived in that room for two years. And that, the way Beloved is acting, reminds me of her. So that must be something similar happened to her. So you get this like just horrifying and heavy and like just atrocious account of one little thing that happened under the huge umbrella of slavery in this really like offhand way. Mm -hmm. And you're getting like a lot of those over the course of the book.
0: You are. Yeah. And it kind of like brings to me this larger theme, like, yes, it's a ghost story, but it kind of like comes back to the haunting of people Mm -hmm. and how all of these people are very haunted by these memories. There's a passage toward the end um I probably won't be able to find it in time. I'll just try to to think about it. But it's a woman in the town who's finally coming around to to feel bad for Setha because people in the town don't like her for a really long time. Yeah. They think she's snooty and there are a lot of other reasons, but she's finally Also
1: her house is hella haunted. Yeah. True, <laughs> they pass by the house and they're like, "Oh shit." But it's <laughs> like
0: mostly their problem is yeah. that
1: like she <sighs> Yeah,
0: doesn't meld well, but I don't know. Yeah. The, um, the woman, though, in any case, that talks about how um, that she says there's no reason for a mother to kill her children. There's no good reason, but there's no good reason for a child to come back from the dead and kill her mom either. Mm-hmm. And she says, you know, what's past needs to stay in the past. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just a really interesting comment in this passage on how um, forgiveness and redemption... It almost feels like a, a human right, mm-hmm. and so there's this this disgust that the woman feels about a past coming back to haunt the mother, and mm-hmm. is specifically a mother, because she yeah. the woman thinks about an experience she had where she was raped by a white man mm-hmm. and had the baby and was disgusted by the baby. And just let it starve, basically. Mm-hmm. She's like, I wouldn't want that baby coming back in a body to haunt me. So, like, people can relate those experiences, yeah. and, and they do come in offhand ways. But it like it creates this tapestry of yes. people that are haunted by this experience.
1: Yeah, and a, a nice touch that I like in the book is that even Denver is haunted by this. Mm-hmm. Denver who. Was born while escaping, lived an entirely free life her entire life, never lived like as an enslaved person, as the property of another person. Even she is like haunted by this. So it has been passed down to her. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that that's, if we're talking about how, you know, in the 60s or now, or I guess this wasn't published in the 60s, this was published in like 93, I think. I think so, yeah. 87. Is my oh, yep, eighty-seven. That's the year I was born. Nice. <laughs> You're as old as this book. <laughs> That's nice. You guys have been in the world the same amount of time. Yeah. Um, Yeah, like if we're talking about like how slavery affects people a generation after slavery, or uh, if we're talking about Toni Morrison, like three or four generations after slavery, or if we're talking about when this book came out, like... You know six or seven generations after slavery the effects are still there the haunting is still there yeah. like you're you still have these stories in your ancestry and like you can trace your ancestry back to the first free person always
0: absolutely like, yeah and for the Jim Crow south and and I mean mm-hmm. that was our our parents we're yeah. little and born yeah. like this is not far yeah. <laughs> removed really and and scientifically they're talking about how um, you know like memory can be almost like genetically mm-hmm. passed on I mean yeah. we know that for things like like alcoholism and substance and stuff like that but but we're, they're talking about trauma, trauma. being yeah. genetically passed
1: on so yeah.
0: there's a there's a shit ton here
1: yeah I re- I really liked that the. the for the most part, in this book, like the horror of slavery doesn't live in this present tense. It lives in this past tense, but it is still... That doesn't make it any less like affecting, or mm-hmm. it doesn't dampen the experience at all. It, it The fact that it lives in the past is the reason why this book is important, is because it is yeah. a past haunting, a present. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this book is really good, and really... I read like a hundred pages of it today and I'm just feel defeated yeah (laughs) dude I I picked it up last
0: week it's interesting that something so heavy can Mm -hmm. be such a page turner I don't like yeah (laughs) because so much of the time with heavy material you feel like you need to put it down and like sit with it and you're Mm -hmm. just really affected by it and while you are very affected by this you also can't stop yeah which
1: is just a really interesting combination Mm -hmm. for a book I think so this book was made into a movie starring Oprah Winfrey yes and when Oprah Winfrey finished reading this book before the movie was ever like in production or anything oprah winfrey finished reading the books this book and then called the police and were like i need tony morrison's phone number and they were like why and she was like it's an emergency and tony morrison answered the phone and was like hello and oprah winfrey was like this book is so good i needed to call you and talk to you about it Oprah just like called the cops on how good of a writer Tony Morrison is. And it made me laugh so hard when that was explained in the documentary. I understand that reaction entirely. I do
0: too. There are just so many um like just need to like layers yell about it. Yeah, you yeah. just need to talk about it right away, which is why I feel so amazing that I could like I literally finished reading this right before I drove here Mm, yeah (laughs)
1: I'm just like yeah when you got here I was like (laughs) how do you feel right now I can't imagine like talking about it immediately (laughs) yeah I feel like it's one of the best books I've ever read yeah yeah I so I read it when I was 19 and I I underlined a bunch of stuff and I'm looking back now and I'm realizing like I'm right I was definitely reading it for a class and I wasn't engaging with, like, the the parts that I'm engaging with now. When I was reading it then, I was like, oh, here's a clue about, like, the ghost story that's happening. Or here's, like, a thematic thing that's happening. And now I'm, like, going through and erasing those and, hi- and underlining other things that are, like, that section about the body that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um which did we wanna read that or did we wanna just talk about it? it? Yeah. I think we should read it. It's, it's like a page on... and a half. It's yeah. not yeah. So,
0: um Baby Suggs, who is the mother in law of Setha mm-hmm. was a very like popular person in the small town that she moved to in Ohio mm-hmm. before Setha and her children came. And and during too, but as one can imagine after the whole um slaughter in the shed things really changed and and baby Suggs um really you know she just got sad and she went up to her bed and died to Mm -hmm. be be like really blunt about it there's a there's some beautiful passages about how she became obsessed with colors Mm -hmm. and um she would want to find like pink for her quilt and find these colors Mm -hmm. and but yeah, she, she just got sad and went up and died, and, and everybody in the town kind of left them to their own devices after that. And Setha, like, wanted it that way. There's almost yeah. this feeling that if she would have asked for help or admitted that she needed people, they would have been there. Because mm-hmm. that's kind of the townspeople come and rally around when Denver asks for help mm-hmm. from Beloved at the end, which is yeah. really interesting. But before that, Baby Suggs was a preacher. I mean, mm-hmm. people loved to come and listen to her speak in a place called The Clearing. So, this is a passage from one of those. I think I'll start here. It's on page 103. Mm. It started that way laughing children, dancing men, crying women, and then it got mixed up. Women stopped crying and danced. Men sat down and cried. Children danced. Women laughed. "'Children cried until, exhausted and riven, all of the each lay about the clearing, damp and gasping for breath. "'In the silence that followed, baby Suggs holy, offered up to them her great big heart. "'She did not tell them to clean up their lives or to go and sin no more. "'She did not tell them they were the blessed of the earth, its inheriting meek or its glory-bound pure.' She told them that the only grace they could have was the grace they could imagine, that if they could not see it, they would not have it. Here, she said, in this here place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet and grass. Love it. Love it hard. Yonder, they do not love your flesh. They despise it. They don't love your eyes. They just as soon pick them out. No more do they love the skin on your back. Yonder, they flay it. And oh, my people, they do not love your hands, those they only use, tie, bind, chop off, and leave empty. Love your hands, love them, raise them up and kiss them. Touch others with them, pat them together, stroke them on your face, because they don't love that either. You got to love it, you. And no, they ain't in love with your mouth. Yonder out there, they will see it broken and break it again. What you say out of it, they will not heed. What you scream from it, they do not hear. What you put into it to nourish your body, they will snatch away and give you leavens instead. No, they don't love your mouth. You got to love it. This is flesh I'm talking about here. Flesh that needs to be loved. Feet that need to rest and to dance. Backs that need support. Shoulders that need arms. Strong arms, I'm telling you. And oh my people out yonder, hear me. They do not love your neck, unnoosed and straight. So love your neck. Put a hand on it, grace it, stroke it, and hold it up. And all your inside parts that they just as soon slot for hogs, you gotta love them. The dark, dark liver, love it, love it, and the beat and beating heart, love that too. More than eyes or feet, more than lungs that have yet to draw free air, more than your life holding womb and your life giving private parts. Hear me now, love your heart, for this is the prize. Saying no more, she stood up then and danced with her twisted hip the rest of what her heart had to say, while the others opened their mouths and gave her the music. Long notes held until the four-part harmony was
1: perfect enough for their deeply loved flesh. It's just so powerful. Yeah. And there. so the I was reading today, and I just passed the part where it's one of these like few kind of past tense chapters that we get where baby Suggs is driven into Ohio by Mr. Garner and she meets the uh, Bodwins, I think Mm -hmm. who are the people in Ohio that are putting her up and are kind of creating these, these houses and these spaces where black free people can live in safety and um, in exchange for work, they can live there and, you know, do whatever they want with their day and be free. And she she gets free. Hallie, her son, says, I want to buy your freedom. And she thinks, I'm 60-something years old. What do I need freedom for? Like, I don't need that, but I'll do it if it makes you happy. And then she doesn't realize until she's actually free and in the house, like, oh, this is everything. Like, he yes. gave me this incredible gift. And so I think this scene where she's preaching kind of highlights how she used her freedom and how she like, lived in her, in her experience so yeah. thoroughly. To...
0: And how she gave her whole body to others mm-hmm. as an enslaved person. And then when she was free, the only thing she had left to give was her heart. And mm-hmm. she gave all of that too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's powerful stuff, man. It's very powerful. And this also, I think, takes us back to this, like, universality of the writing and that, like, we all, you know, have feet that we can think about. <laughs> and, like, you yeah. know, it, it, she, Toni Morrison is using these really concrete things to, to highlight, like, how visceral slavery was. Because I, I think, I don't know how how it was thought about in the 80s but like I think now we think about this like big kind of shapeless high level amoeba of mm-hmm. slavery and we don't really get into this like granular day-to-day kind of experience but that that's what's being done in these like offhand stories in these past tense chapters is like this is the lived experience like the recorded experience of people who were enslaved mm-hmm. and this is the you know the imagined experience of what a woman would do with her freedom afterward and she Toni Morrison is making it visceral and she's tying it to specific body parts and she's I don't know I I have never before reading this book this past week and if I did this before when I read it I don't remember but I've never like imagined myself as an enslaved person I'm sure I imagine that's not something that off base for someone who knows that they're like fourth great-grandmother was a slave you know right. but I had never done that before and I think that that's I don't know not to be all like white apologists right now but like I it's just uh Tony Morrison is doing something really special and powerful with her words here and by making it this visceral bodily experience
0: she is because she makes you put your body in that situation yes because We've all felt humiliation to some degree. And Mm -hmm. I think about the feeling of humiliation um, of like the body. And and she makes you imagine that to the just the utmost Mm -hmm. degree, which is what slavery was. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a a passage in there about baby Suggs saying like, um, she always behaved so perfectly in front of her children because she never wanted... Her children to see her um, hit or pushed onto the ground. Mm-hmm. This this feeling of not owning something where you have a soul pulsing through you. Yeah. I think there's a, another great passage with Paul D, who was another um, slave on Sweet Home, who um, escaped multiple places. Yeah. actually, but there's a, a passage when he's in Alfred, Georgia, I think, and mm-hmm. he's chained to, like, 46 other men who mm-hmm. all remarkably escaped together, which yeah, is, like... Yeah,
1: because it, ra- it had one of those, like, days-long rainstorms in yeah, the south, yeah. and they all just, like, stuck off.
0: But, like, the way that she talks about, like, his body and, like, the blood in his veins pumping mm-hmm. and the way that, like, is that my hand and mm-hmm. the hands moving of your own volition, and you just you see the body attached to this this thing that like we can't imagine but we mm. know what it's like to be in a body so that's mm. the connection i yeah. think <laughs>
1: and there's she's also um, doing these other ones where she's like setha the character met her mother like a few times like and knew who her mother was because an older girl on the plantation set pointed her out in the field and said, that's your mother. Mm-hmm. And then that woman took her behind a shed later and showed her a branding mark and mm-hmm. said, I'm your mother. This is who you, I am. And like, could only you had, know me? Too. Yeah. This is how you'll know me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then baby Suggs in, in the later section is talking about how she had all these children, like eight children, I think. And then Hallie was her youngest. And, when he's first born she's like why would I bother memorizing his features or giving him a name if I'm not going to know him as an adult and she ties it again to like I'm not going to know what his baby teeth grow up to look like as an adult I'm not going to know like what his hands grow up to look like um but then Hallie ends up being the only child that she actually does know into adulthood Mm -hmm. and so he gets a name and he buys her freedom and These very humanizing, like, universal experiences of, like, having a name. Baby Socks didn't have a name. Yeah. I love how, like, you get to see how,
0: like, the names evolve, too. Or, Mm -hmm. like, where the story came from. Because Mm -hmm. um, it was when she came to Sweet Home... They called her Jenny, and she's like, I don't know why they keep calling me Jenny. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what that is. But that's what was on her papers when yeah. they bought her. But she didn't know that that's what they would called her. And she said, Yeah, my name's Baby. That's what my husband called me.
1: Yeah, and <laughs> Suggs, cause that's his last name. Like, she like, didn't have a name what? before she got married. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the power from this book comes from the fact that it's a spooky, spooky ghost story, and all these stories about slavery and like the lived experience of it but i think the real power of the book is coming from like how visceral and like common and everyday it is there's actually a line in the documentary where someone is saying that someone describes tony morrison as being shakespearean but pedestrian she's telling yes. these grand narratives but in a very like daily everyday kind of common experience and about people that aren't like kings or yeah. aristocrats or you know people yeah. like that
0: Shakespeare's writing about but like people who live every day mm-hmm.
1: people we would never like look at what a book man what a book <laughs> <laughs> there's a writer i follow on twitter called bola bolu babalola oh my god this is funny because there's a clip of her pumping up her own book um it's
0: Called Loving Color, and it's by I'm not quite sure I'd say this name, so forgive me. Abu Bolu
1: Babalola, I think she's over. That's Bolu Babalola. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, she's a writer I follow on Twitter. That's fantastic. Who tweeted something recently about like, we should also recognize that Toni Morrison was hot. Oh my gosh, so <laughs> She's like hot. beautiful. So hot.
0: Yeah. She's one of those people that's like, perpetually lovely because oh, of yeah. her soul. Like in the documentary, just, the way just like she...
1: listening to her talk was so charming. And she she talked about, she was like, when I was at Howard, I was loose. It was lovely. I had a lovely <laughs> time. And I was like, I believe you. I'm 100%.
0: Like, yes. Making men those carrot cakes. <laughs> yes. She also talked,
1: she was like, I have the best carrot cake you've ever tasted. And I was like, I believe you, Tony Morrison. She's 100%. like, other people don't put enough carrots in it. Okay. Yeah that tracks. Yeah. Yeah, she's so um unassuming, I don't know. There's a there's a moment where she was talking so she's talking about the Nobel and she's like, yeah, it was this great. She's very like humble and low-key about it. Not even humble, she's just like low-key. But then earlier in the documentary when she's talking about how her company in Syracuse got bought by Random House and moved everyone to New York City, She's like they can only take so many people with them and I was one of the people that was chosen and she kind of like perks up and smiles like she's really proud of herself about that and I just love the contrast of like my company chose to take me with them like I'm yeah, yeah. and then like the Nobel being like yeah I won the Nobel prize. She's she's
0: joyful. Yeah. She's powerful and she's deep and she's serious but she's also very joyful. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it was so refreshing. I thought don't get me wrong. I love Susan Sontag more than most people who've walked this earth. But mm-hmm. I, for some reason, I was comparing the two in my mind when they were interviewed. Mm. And Susan Sontag is very compa- like combative when mm. people are interviewing her, and she's like, "I've never said that." No, like you know, when they quote <laughs> yeah. her, she's just very combative. And Toni Morrison, when she was getting some of those similar, similarly inane questions mm-hmm. that that interviewers will give you, the way that she handled them was was serious. And pointed, but also like joyful in like a really interesting mm-hmm. way. There was a a point where she's talking about racism, and she's like, "We we need to talk about it as like a psychosis of the white person. Yeah. Like if you only feel tall because someone else is on their knees, um, then you have a problem. And yeah. she's like, you, "Racism is white people's problem. Leave me out of it." Yeah. And I was just like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> like, yeah. That's probably the best way I've ever heard it. Yeah. described. Yeah, and so
1: succinctly, too. Yeah, yeah. There's also um, in the present day footage of the documentary, there's a section where she's talking about how she noticed she was getting paid a lot less than her male co-workers, her white male co-workers, and she went into her boss's office. She didn't get, like, the bonus that they did, or the raise, I think, that they did, and she went into her boss's office and said, like, hey, I noticed that you didn't you know you didn't give me the raise that they got i'm doing the same work i do it better than them like i want i want this raise and she said she is in recounting the story she's talking about how she said directly to him you may see me as a woman or a person of color or whatever but i'm a head of household just like you yes i'm not this other category i'm head of household i'm raising two sons i deserve this raise and she got the raise yeah
0: and the way that she kept saying head of household it was you know what, I'm not like coming at you from like, women need this and this and this, or black women need this and this and this. She's like, I'm coming at you like I'm head of household. This is a fact that you cannot dispute. Yeah. (laughs) Like, not only am I doing the same amount of work, but I'm head of household. Yeah. It was very
1: emphasized. Yeah. 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 And the same kind of response. I'm Mm -hmm. just like, I'm not going to get in your face. I'm not going to be combative. I'm just going to tell you plainly. Yeah. This is the situation.
0: And in a way, I hate that just we have confidence. to, like, yeah, yeah th- that we have to yeah. say, like, oh, you shouldn't be combative or you shouldn't be aggressive because, like, of course people need to be. Yeah. Um. But I think it's worth noting that she just had this very, like, subtly powerful way mm-hmm. about her. And I shouldn't even say subtly because it wasn't subtle. It was yeah. direct, but it was, she just had a very interesting way of going about things that I think was very effective. hmm I'm not describing what I'm thinking well at all. I think,
1: I think part of what makes her such a, a like widely respected writer and like a, you hate to be like oh this person is really like the voice of Black America or Black woman or whoever like you don't want to pin that on any one person. Obviously, experience is a lot more varied than that. Like the reason that she's so beloved by all these people is because she knows her own worth as a writer and she knows the worth of black people that she's writing about she knows the worth of black women she like doesn't see them as like in this hierarchy she's like no Angela Davis you're doing something phenomenal and you should write a an autobiography and Angela Davis needs convinced but then she does it and like she's she knows her own worth and she has the confidence of knowing her worth and I think that's what That is that that energy. energy.
0: You're absolutely right. Yeah, knowing her worth. That's what I was struggling for, I Mm -hmm. think. And like, there's dignity.
1: And I was like, it's more than confidence. It's
0: dignity. She's dignified. And Mm -hmm. she used that word in the documentary too, when she was talking about the dignity of the women who came before her and her Mm -hmm. like female lineage. And that part got me worked up. Yeah. I was like, oh shit.
1: I really like this one moment. There's a moment where she's talking about the signs um so she explains as she explains the town that she grew up in she grew up amongst like polish immigrants and irish immigrants and greek immigrants and like everyone you can imagine and later in the documentary she says like you know that's all fine and good but you still need black people as that cultural melting pot to mix everyone else into white. Yeah, she's like they are
0: the pot. Yeah, she's like oh shit, uh, wow. But and she's, she's like
1: that's the way I see it. Yeah, she's talking about how when she grew up, she she didn't experience the kind of racism that other people did, um, which became really evident to her when she went to Howard, um, mm-hmm. which is a historically black college. And but she is talking about how the sign, like there were signs up everywhere saying like whites um, and colored and she looks at the screen and she says colored and she like mocks it a little bit. Yeah. And like just her, I don't know, her demeanor is so casual. And she's like, it is, she's like, yeah. don't call me that.
0: Like it's so and the way she told that story, it was almost like she was telling like a funny college story. Yeah. Way that she she's like, I used to steal those signs and send them home to my mom. Cause we thought they were funny. And yeah. it was like, Wait, what? <laughs> like... Yeah. I was
1: appalled. I was like, you weren't like terrified. Yeah. Yeah.
0: For Beloved, I kind of want to talk about the character Beloved and the ghost of the story. Yeah, we haven't talked at
1: all about Beloved herself. Yeah,
0: there is a passage that I love. Well, it's a chapter where it's all in her voice and Mm. there's no punctuation. And it's kind of like a stilted, poetic, but someone who doesn't have language, Mm -hmm. but has feelings, which, you know, the baby who dies doesn't mm-hmm. really have language. doesn't really have language only his yeah. feelings. And, but the way that she's able to write that is so powerful. Mm-hmm. So we should probably give a little bit of, I yeah. guess our view of who yeah. and what beloved is before yeah. we read that, because it is a little bit open-ended.
1: Yeah. So as, a, so beloved appears like 50 pages into the book and she, Just climbs out of the water and sits on a tree, and she can't open her eyes that much, and she's just trying to breathe, and she's like she's being born. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she gradually like musters up the strength to go to the front yard and sit on a tree there, and that's when the family comes home: Seth, the beloved, or Setha Denver, and Paul D, who's just gotten to town, and they come home and find her, and then she just kind of like lives with them. She just kind of like moves in, and she. She acts like a baby a little bit, like a grown woman. Yeah. She can talk and she can understand things, but she, you know, when she first climbs out of the river, she can't open her eyes. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, she moves very slowly, even though mm-hmm. she looks young
1: and fit, like 19, 20, yeah. probably the age that the baby would yeah. be. Um, so I guess it's kind of, it seems to me at the point I'm at the, in the book that she is like the incarnated ghost of... The baby, yes,
0: and it seems like so. When Paul D moves in, he is a, a f- freed well, an escaped slave who was also on Sweet Home, uh-huh. the plantation. and He grew up with um, Setha's husband, Hallie, mm-hmm. but always kind of liked Setha because yeah. all the boys did mm-hmm. at Sweet Home. Um, but finds her and kind of moves in, and they start a romantic relationship. And when he moves in, he, like, chases the ghost out. Yeah. So the baby ghost that had been haunting mm-hmm. the house um, is kind of – is chased out at the time when Paul D gets there. So it seems like the ghost somehow, like, manifests into this corporeal form mm-hmm. that then, like, becomes Beloved. Mm-hmm. And Beloved, um, the name – comes from the headstone for the little mm-hmm. girl mm-hmm. and all the mom could afford was she wanted to to engrave some of the preacher's words the mm-hmm. dearly beloved we are gathered here but she only got to beloved yeah. And she actually. Because
1: um, she paid, if it was less than a half hour, she got like a reduced rate or something. So yeah. she wanted it to be.
0: And the half hour, make no mistake, was her giving her body to the engraver. Yeah. For the words beloved to be on the headstone. So when this girl, and it, it's interesting because Denver knows right away. This is my sister. Yeah. This is the baby ghost. This is mm-hmm. my sister. But it takes Setha almost the whole book yeah. to realize it. Um, and Paul D knows there's something weird about her. Like the dog, here, boy, is the mm-hmm. dog. The dog takes off as yeah. soon as the um, beloved is in the house. And she knows things. Like she'll ask Setha questions, like where are your earrings? Or mm-hmm. um, she'll she'll do things that only someone who's familiar with the story. Or with these people would be able to do or say. Yeah,
1: and she is temperamental. Very she's much. Very so. possessive of Satha. She doesn't like that Satha gives her attention to Paul D. Just in like willing it, she like forces Paul D. Out of the house until he's like sleeping in the the cold shed outside where mm-hmm. they keep their food on ice. Yeah. Yeah. She's very possessive, the way that a child is. Yeah. A parent. Yeah.
0: I really liked the way that Tony Morrison talked about the character Beloved in the documentary too because she said she loves her mother, but she mm-hmm. also wants to hurt her because yeah. her mother hurt her. And it's just a very like human description I think of this mm-hmm. like of this ghostly character. Um I'm trying yeah. to find a good place. So this starts on 249 in my copy. This yes. um Beloved chapter.
1: I have notations here from 2009, so nice. I, I clearly read this at some point. And just the whole
0: chapter is really eye-opening, but I just want to find mm-hmm. like one paragraph. I cannot lose her again. My dead man was in the way like the noisy clouds. When he dies on my face, I can see hers. She is going to smile at me. She is going to. Her sharp earrings are gone. The men without skin are making loud noises. They push my own man through. They do not push the woman with my face through. She goes in. They do not push her. She goes in. The little hill is gone. She was going to smile at me. She was going to. A hot thing.
1: Mm -hmm. Like yeah.
0: the way that it's written, it it's her experience being in the in between. Yeah. And there's an interesting line that one of the the townswomen have when they say, like you know, people who don't die well don't stay in the ground. hmm So there's this in betweenness yeah. where she always says to Setha, "The clouds were in the way. I tried to get to you, but the clouds were in the way, or the dead man was on top of me, or mm-hmm. it's." wow <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really intense but but the woman beloved or the the bodily form mm-hmm. beloved when she gets into the house like at first with paul d and denver like they settle into a routine like mm-hmm. beloved goes to meet setha when she comes out and gets home from work and it, it kind of has like a homeostasis for a while but mm-hmm. when paul d finally learns about what Uh, setha did Mm -hmm. he ends up leaving and that's kind of when setha realizes who beloved is that Mm -hmm. that's her daughter and just fawns over her Mm -hmm. wants to like feed her all the time give her everything and they enter this interesting dance where she wants forgiveness, but she doesn't want forgiveness mm-hmm. and beloved wants to forgive her, but doesn't also wants to punish her. And so it's just this like really unhealthy, like terrible balance that Denver sees like, okay. And oh, it was so interesting when you said, um, the freedom part that Denver was born free Mm -hmm. because I thought of this part where she hardly ever steps out of like 124. So she's like technically free, but she is like haunted and like enslaved by this like familial, um, this familial haunting.
1: Yeah. There's that little section where there's a woman named Lady Jones, Uh who um, has a shed in the woods where she teaches black children to read and to count. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess this was written, or this is set in like the late 1800s. Yeah. So after the war that's the other thing like the yeah. civil
0: war and reconstruction are going on around here but it's kind of it's like nonchalant thing. like we talk like paul d i guess fought for both sides at one point yeah <laughs> but like,
1: 1873 yeah. is what it says so there's so learning to read is still illegal and there's a woman named lady jones who teaches children in the shed in the woods where they can be safe and they can learn and no one will find them. And Denver goes to that for like a year or something. She mm-hmm. goes and learns to read and learns to count. Um, and the other kids avoid her because they know the story about her mother. Um, and then she stops going once one of them asks her about it. Yeah. And she doesn't go back because she doesn't want to face that. And so what slavery led this woman to do ends up haunting the rest of her family, you know, So it's both being haunted by the, like, the choice that Setha made, but also, like, the legacy that led her to make that choice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it's really um, heart-wrenching to hear her talk about that choice when she finally begins to open up about it. Mm -hmm. Because she says, like, as a mother, I'm probably paraphrasing terribly, but... My job is to protect them from the terrible things I know. Mm-hmm. And that's what she was trying to do. The only way that she could keep them safe was was to kill them. That, yeah. that was in her mind. That was, that was the choice. It was like, I can let them go back to this life that I know is terrible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or we can all die together. And that yeah. was the choice she was making then. And it's really interesting in the narrative of the time. And they touch on this a little bit too with the um, white couple. Is it the Bodwins or the Godwins? The Bodwins. Um, Who toward the end are are talking about like what that did with their work Mm -hmm. and like the implications of that, because the narrative of the time was that people wanted to say, "Oh, look! If left to their own devices, black mm-hmm. people are barbarous. They're mm-hmm.
1: savages. Like it's good that they're yeah. enslaved." Like it was but, a legal question of whether, yeah, yeah, this killing counted as a murder or destruction of property. Mm-hmm. Like it—that's how ingrained it was. But this couple, like, said that
0: they were able to um, actually use this in the other way of like. No, this is what this leads to, mm-hmm. like, yeah, this, yeah,
1: no, I think it I think it takes a a real kind of exceptional insight to be able to step outside of the time you're in and say, like, and see history as it's happening, mm-hmm. you know, to to see like, this is what the legacy of slavery has done to this one woman, and this is the choice she made out of that. And so it is not that this woman is barbarous it is that slavery is a barbarous industry yes and it creates all this trauma and desperation and desperation
0: yeah how, like the narrative that they said they were able to push was like how bad is that life mm-hmm. that a mother would kill her own children rather than let them go back to it
1: yeah yeah
0: it's intense
1: it's a very intense book but also a very fast book
0: So good. Paul D said um, something too. No, it's a conversation that they're having together. But uh, he says, Your love is too thick Mm. when she tells him the story and like why she did it. He Mm -hmm. said, Your love is too thick. And she says, Thin love isn't love at all. Mm -hmm. So.
1: Yeah. And that I think going back to like how Baby Suggs didn't name her children, didn't like want to recognize their features as like that's the only love that they were afforded it's the only love that people were allowed to have was this very like or Setha's mother saying like this is how you will know me like i'm your mother just this one conversation like that's the only love that they were allowed to have and I, Paul D.
0: has a, a passage about that too where he talks about you want to love small and care small mm-hmm. because to love a big thing like a woman or a brother or a child, it's mm-hmm. too painful. So you yeah. love small things like like the feeling of the rain or mm-hmm. you know the feeling of the grass under your feet or even those small things can be taken away from you. So you you have to set almost like your own parameters and not love too big too, yeah. which was just a heart-wrenching way to to think about it
1: yeah it's very remarkable that tony morrison is able to put all of this experience on the page it really is yeah do we have any like closing thoughts we're at about an hour here
0: i think if you've never read tony morrison which before this year i never had
1: mm, this is the only book of hers that i've read
0: um I read Sula to begin with because Mm -hmm. I had picked it up at a used bookstore recently. And just, I was like, oh, Toni Morrison, she's huge. I've never read her. I should. So I read Sula. And then that led me, Beloved, I actually found in um, the basement at my mom's house. So I don't know who had been reading it years ago, probably my mom, which is another, begs another interesting question, like what does a mother feel when reading this? Because um, I obviously don't have children yet, so that has to be a different experience. But if you've never read anything by Toni Morrison, I think *Beloved* is a is a powerhouse place to mm-hmm. start. Um, I know I'm going to move through her works now pretty yeah. quickly. I want to pick up *Paradise*. I want to pick up *Song of Solomon*. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm mm-hmm. um, I'm just transfixed by the way that she writes. I think mm-hmm. it was one one of the folks in the documentary said, "If there's life on other planets they're reading Toni Morrison yeah. to figure out what it's like to be human <laughs> yeah
1: there's actually there's like coverage of there's all these videos of the Nobel Prize winners being announced and Tony Morrison hadn't gotten a call yet from anyone so she's like I don't know if this is real and all these news reporters are like outside of her office and her home as she's going to work and she they're like what like someone asked the question what what do you think? Sets your writing apart, and she's like, "I'm a good writer. I I I know how to use language. Like it's in the writing. Yes, Um, yes, yeah, which is true. Like we we've read passages from her in this episode, but there are some just really beautiful lines in here. Um,
0: There are, and for folks who are writers or who want to be writers, I haven't felt so inspired by someone.
1: Mm-hmm. In a long
0: time, the way that she talks about writing itself, yeah, um, and some of her habits as a writer. If you're into the daily routines of successful writers, which I am, yeah, she said that when she was raising her kids, she woke up at five in the morning, and then she continued to do that even mm-hmm. when her kids were grown or in school or gone. Just she said, "I'm I'm really smart in the morning. I'm yeah. not so smart in the afternoons or after lunch." But yeah. but that said to me as a writer, it was just like to find your place or your niche mm-hmm. and not beat yourself up because I, I beat myself up a lot for not yeah, like I do too. doing the right times or like the, the set things. But if, if you find what works for you,
1: mm-hmm. I think
0: that that's huge. And yeah, she's just, she's just a wonderful person. Yeah. This is like uh toward the end of the book, I wrote this down too, just mm-hmm. I wanted to share. Yeah. But Denver is, is nervous to uh, step outside 124 and she almost, like, hears the voice of baby Suggs. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about how there's no defense. And they're talking about from white people there. But, like, the way that it's written, it's it's anyone who's scared to do anything. And so she's mm-hmm. scared to step outside of the yard here. And she says, but you said there was no defense. Baby Suggs says there ain't. Then what do I do? Know it and go on out the yard. Go on. So, like.
1: Know it and go on out. Yeah, wow. like,
0: it's just, oh, it's everything about being a human. Mm-hmm. You, you know there's no defense. You know that there's terrible shit out there. There mm-hmm. is, but what do you do? You know it, and you walk outside anyway.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful.
0: It's lots of closing thoughts, I yeah. guess, apparently.
1: <laughs> the, I think that's a really good place to to wrap up. The documentary has a really good ending, too, Put the hand. Of. Tell them. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess Toni Morrison. If you want to be surprised by it, I would say just stop listening now. Oh, them. that's good. But a yeah. there's a spoiler alert. Um, Toni Morrison was at a an art exhibit where you walk up to a mirror and put your hand on the glass, and someone walks up behind you and puts their hand on the glass over yours, and so you are only. Either you're looking at the back of someone's head, or you're looking at someone in the reflection, and you don't have any like direct contact with this person except your hands. And Toni Morrison says like that's what writing is. I don't know you. You don't know me. We don't know our story, each other's stories, but we have this. And she yeah. holds her hand up to the screen, and it's just this beautiful image. I don't know you, but I know this. And yeah. then she just has
0: this beautiful smile on her mm. face. Oh, it's it's, it's so, so powerful. good. I can't handle it.
1: Everything she does is so powerful. Well, I can't handle it. I'll just step outside. Yeah. (laughs) Lessons have been learned. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking. I think this was really good. I'm really excited that we got to do this. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, so we are back again. So if you want to... Follow us on Twitter. We're at Loitering Pod. We're on Instagram at Loitering Pod. And you can email us at loiteringpodcast at gmail.com. This sounds so inane saying this after these beautiful Toni Morrison anecdotes, but um, that's what it is. So thank you for listening, and we will be back next time. We sure will. Thank you. Bye. Bye.